Thank you, team. You can go ahead and be seated. And as you are, welcome to Crossroads. It's good to see you today and uh, happy new year to you. Collectively, you look a lot thinner. So good job. Well done this first week of resolutions. Uh, yeah, we are getting into the new year. If you're brand new with us, I want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And uh, today uh, we are starting a brand new sermon series as we turn the page this first weekend uh, to 2024. And today, as we get started, really I want to start uh, this brand new year with this question. Uh, this question is this, is why do we sometimes know the right thing to do, the good thing to do, the loving thing to do, and then just not do it? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about why is it that we sometimes know the right thing to do, the good thing to do, the most loving thing to do, and then just not do it. Or maybe another way you can think about it is, is why do we not do what is good? This was the question of the great philosopher Socrates. It was the question of the theologian Apostle Paul. It was what drove the passion of the early great reformers like Luther and Zingli. The question has taken many forms throughout the history, many forms throughout the ages, but essentially it comes down to this, is why do we do, why do we not do what we know is good? Why do we do what we eventually will regret? I mean, for all of the vast religious and ethical writings out there that are available to us, for all the evidences of the futility of violence and hatred in our own personal lives and, and in the world, for all of the, you know, uh, all of the effort that we give in getting the help that we need, for all of the yearning to be men and women uh, that love, that the problem for us is that we don't know what we ought to do, the reality is, is that for most of us, we know what we should do. We just can't do it. That that's the big problem of the human race. We basically know what we should do and we can't do it. And so the question remains, why can't we be good all the time? Now, truthfully speaking, that's not a question we give a lot of thought to. It's not a question that we talk a lot about in society. But I believe that as we turn the page to 2024, it is the only question that can truly make a difference. And so what we're going to do over the next three weeks is we're going to do this short sermon series called Fallen Kings, where we're going to attempt to answer that question by looking at the first three kings of Israel and looking at their hearts, their passions, what drove them, in hopes of learning a little bit about ourselves in hopes of seeing a little bit of the grander, bigger picture of humanity, and in doing so, begin to answer this question. And so, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10, as we begin to look at the first king of Israel, a guy by the name of Saul. Now, the story of the kings of Israel really begins with an old prophet and priest named Samuel. Now, Samuel was a pretty important guy in the Old Testament. Now, for many, many years, Samuel led the people of Israel, led the Hebrew people in the ways of God. That any time the Hebrew people had questions or concerns or, you know, where do we go or what should we do or, or what's next for us as a nation, what they would do is that they would go visit Samuel in this town called Shiloh. Now, Shiloh, just for historically, so we're all on the same page, Shiloh was the very first capital city of Israel. Remember when the Israelites, they fleed their captivity from Egypt. They made their way to the Red Sea. You know, let my people go. They crossed the Red Sea. 
Sea. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. And then they eventually got to the land that was promised by God. And when they got into Israel, what's known today as modern day Israel, they set up camp on this mountainside and they called the town Shiloh. Now today, you can still visit Shiloh. Uh, this is actually a picture when I was there in Israel earlier this year. And where those flags are at is what was called the tabernacle, that this was where the presence of God resided. If there's any like holy places on earth, this would be one of them. This is where for almost 400 years, the presence of God resided. You can visit there today. And so what people would do in Israel is that they would come to Samuel with their questions, their concerns, where are we heading as a nation? And what Samuel would do is that he would go into the presence of God, he would inquire God, he would seek God, he would pray to God, he would get insight from God, and then he would lead the people in the ways of God. Now, throughout Samuel's life, God made it clear over and over and over again to the Jewish people that God, he was their king. That they didn't need a king because God was their king. But Israel, throughout their history, would look at other nations and other countries and they would go, well, that country's got a king. And God would go, no, 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 no. I'm your God. I'm your king. And they would go, yeah, but that country's got a king and that country's got a king and they got a castle and they got a palace and they got a kingdom. We want what they have. And God goes, no, 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 no. I'm your God and I'm your king. And I want to show the rest of the world through you what it looks like to live differently as you follow me as both God and king. And Israel goes, that's really cool, God. That's all well and good. We just want a king. And so God listens to the people and God gives them their first king. He appoints or anoints a king. Now, This first king, his name is Saul. And I'm telling you, when it came to Saul, he totally looked the part. He literally was head and shoulders above the rest of the people. He was good looking. In fact, when I close my eyes and imagine Saul, this is the picture that comes to mind for me. All joking aside, right? Saul's told of us that he's, that he's tall, he's good looking, he's smart, he's articulate. Like, like he looked the part, like, like he had everything that was going on. It looked like he was knowing what he was doing. And so the day of coronation comes where they're going to crown him king. And here's what happens in chapter 10, starting in verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot and brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And the clan of the Matarites was taken by Lot and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. All of that by Lot, by Lot, by Lot just means that God was making it abundantly clear that Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, was going to be the first king of Israel. Everybody knew it. And so everybody's gathered. Everybody's come together to celebrate the crowning of their king. But when they sought him, that is Saul, he couldn't be found. And the whole crowd looks and they inquired again to the Lord and said, is there a man still to come? Like, God, we don't, we don't see this Saul guy. Like, we can't find him anywhere. Are you sure? Like, he's going to ride in on a donkey or a horse or something. Like, did we miss him? Like, where he's at? This is a great story. And the Lord said to them, behold, <laughs> he has hidden himself in the bags. Like, he's hiding. And so they ran over and they took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from shoulder upward. And Samuel said to all of the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king, long live the king, right? And so Samuel, through 
God anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. And the first couple of years were totally great. They were. They were super, super great. Saul was kind of getting the hang of this king thing. He had some, he's had some early victories in terms of, of, you know, battling other nations. He was seeking God. He was finding his place as a king. He was really getting his legs as a king. And after a few years, God comes to him with this very specific task. And we pick up the task in chapter 15, starting in verse 1. And Sam Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Just remember, you're the king, Saul. God's put you as king. And here's what we have. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. But kill both men and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. All right. So there's sometimes when we're reading through the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, and we get to a passage like this, and our reaction, understandably so, is like, what? Like, am I understanding this right? Like, this is really troubling. Is, is God really asking King Saul to go out and to wipe out an entire people group? Is, is that what's going on here? Do I understand this? And for most of the time, we read passages like this, and we wish we hadn't, and we just kind of like, you know, try to ponder it, but eventually just kind of move on and pretend it's not there, and just kind of move on with our lives. Except for being people of faith, this being in the scriptures, we need to understand what this is all about. Like we can't just skip over that, particularly as a church who says that one of our values is treat the Bible like we believe it. And so what's going on here? Now, the problem for us is typically when we read a passage like this one, we read it a bit superficially. And what I mean by that is that we have to read, we cannot read outside of the context of what's going on during this time. See, the Amalekites were a brutal people. Historically, they committed all kinds of atrocities. They, were, uh, they committed genocide. They were marauders. They were rapers. They, historically speaking, they were a ruthlessly violent people. And so then the question is, is how do you stop an evil group like the Amalekites? How do you, how do you keep them from waging violence on others? Well, the answer is by force. The answer is by force. But when God comes on the scene and he tells Saul, look, Saul, I want you to go and attack the Amalekites with force. He's also saying, I don't want you to use force on them the way that they've used force on others. Let me explain. Every nation, when it wages war, says that it wages war for the same reason that we're going to war for truth and justice. That's, that's what every country of every war that's ever been fought, that we're going for truth and justice. Now, even though every country says that, the reality is, is that every war, every battle, every, every nation, when they start to wage violence, are really doing so primarily as an act of imperialism. Primarily, it's an act in order to enrich themselves. That countries aren't just going to war in order to kill, they do it to get slave labor, to get farmland, timber, livestock, cattle, to protect oil interests. They do it to enrich themselves. 
And so God comes along and says to Saul, look, I want you to wipe out the Amcolites, but I want to do it. But as you do it, I want you to know that you're doing it as a divine instrument of justice. That you are an instrument of divine justice. This terrible but necessary thing that you have to do is an act of divine justice, not imperialism, which means, Saul, that you cannot gain one cent from this. That you, you can't do this to enrich yourself. There's no spoils of war here. That you are not to take anything, but you are to destroy everything of the Amalekites. That this isn't imperialism. This is divine justice. And so King Saul goes out, and he does what he's told. He goes, and he begins to wage war with the Amalekites. And as he does, the war is taking place. And here's what happens, chapter 15, verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agog. That's the pagan king of Amalek. And the best of the sheep and the ox and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them and that which was despised and worthless, the things that they saw that lacked value, those are the things that came to destruction. And so here we have Saul who is called to be an instrument of divine justice, actually adopting the very uh, imperialistic values of the nation that he was sent to smite. That he became the very thing that he was called to stand against. And as a result, he completely failed the people as their king and failed God as the king that God wanted that he failed to be a light to the other nations that would mark Israel as different. And at this moment under Saul's reign, they are nothing more, nothing more. Israel is nothing more than a nation that leverages violence to enrich themselves. And God is furious. In verse 10, the, Lord of the, word, uh, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel and he says this, I regret that I made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Morning comes the next day. Samuel gets up knowing that he has to go to the palace to confront the king. And as he arrives there, he sees Saul and immediately he goes, Saul, why did you disobey God? And Saul's like, what? What are you talking about? I did everything. Verse 20, Saul says to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on mission on which the Lord sent me. Like I've done everything, everything that God asked, done. And Samuel goes, oh yeah, really? You were supposed to kill everyone. And Saul says, I did, I took care of everyone. And Samuel goes, why is there a pagan king sitting over there? And he goes, oh, Agog, I kept him. I kept him. I've brought Agog, the king of Amalek, and I devoted the Amalekites to destruction. We kept the king, but we're destroying everybody else. And Samuel looks at Saul and goes, you weren't supposed to take any plunder, that you weren't supposed to enrich your stuff. You weren't supposed to take anything. And Saul goes, we we didn't take anything that that wasn't valuable. I mean, look, it it was the people. It was the people who took the spoil and the sheep and the oxen and the best things devoted to destruction. And by the way, Samuel, we just did it. He knows he's in hot water, right? We just did it because we're going to make sacrifices to God. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Uh Uh-oh, not the Lord my God. Samuel, the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel can barely comprehend what he's hearing from King Saul, and he lays this on him. 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is the iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And right here, is where we find Saul's heart. The first king of Israel is driven by fear. We saw hints of it at his coronation when he's hiding in the bags. And now fear has taken over and is the full-fledged driver of his life, making the decisions that he's making. Just a few years later, he is now a slave to fear, and sadly, he will be driven by fear the entirety of his life that Saul is a sober reminder to us that ultimately we obey the ones that we fear. For Saul, he feared people. He loved his reputation and in doing so, in doing so he deceived himself and disobeyed God. And for those of us in this room and listening online, we know that fear is powerful, isn't it? That fear can absolutely rob us of opportunities, that fear influences our relationships, that it impacts how we parent, it can impact our marriages, it can impact the very, you know, things of our life in, in such ways that it keeps us up at night. That when it comes to fear, that fear isn't the worst thing about us, but it's one of the reasons why we do the worst things. That fear isn't the worst thing about us, but it's one of the reasons that we do the worst things. It's one of the reasons why we choose not to do good all the time. And when we're talking about fear, when it comes to fear, it's not even that it's a bad thing all the time, that sometimes it can be good even as an emotion, right? Like if you're walking through a zoo and the bears get out, fear says run. That's a good thing, right? Like, like you need to run in that moment. And we have to realize that when it comes to fear, that fear is actually the byproduct of a gift that God has given humanity. That God has given this gift to humanity, this ability to accumulate knowledge and to project into the future. That as humans, and nothing else in real creation can do this, as, as humans, we are able to collect information in such a way that we have the ability to make progress. It's this ability that, that allows us to imagine. It's this ability that gives us creativity. It's, it's this ability that allows us to dream and look forward to things. But it's also this ability that creates the possibility of fear because it creates an endless series of what ifs. And when this amazing gift to project into the future leads us to fear controlling our lives, fear being the driving force of our lives, it puts us off balance, doesn't it? It causes us to do things that we know aren't right. It causes us to do things that we know aren't good. It causes us to do things that we know isn't loving. And particularly when it comes to fear itself, that we become very self-absorbed. And that's exactly where we see our following Saul. Fear driving his major decisions, becoming a slave to fear. And the thing that he feared is ultimately what he obeyed. 
that he was afraid of not being like all the other kings that he saw out in the nations, and it drove him to make the willful choices that he made in his life. And so the question then becomes, what is the solution to that? What is the solution? And, and you know, interesting enough, Samuel actually gives it to us in 1 Samuel 15, verse 17, when Samuel said this to Saul, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? I mean, you stand head and shoulders above everybody, but you're little in your own eyes. Aren't you actually the leader of the tribes of Israel? Isn't it the Lord God who anointed you king over Israel? In other words, you were made king through the sovereign grace of God. You weren't better or smarter or wiser. You were taller, but aside from that, Saul, you were small in your own eyes. And God, he swept in and he chose you. He made you king by his grace. It wasn't anything that you did. You didn't earn this. You didn't deserve this. God, by his grace, gave this to you. And Samuel looks at him and says, don't you see? Don't you see that you being a slave to fear is actually a rejection of God's sovereign grace in your life? That you are rejecting the grace of God. That you are trying to trust in yourself instead of trusting in the grace of God. That you're trying to make yourself big in your own eyes and you're so scared that you can't. That it's messing everything else up. That it's, that it's driving you to these decisions and everything is going wrong. Centuries later, centuries later, we fast forward to the New Testament and we read about another king, King Jesus. And we're introduced to Jesus in his ministry in the most fascinating of all scenes that at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, what we have is Jesus standing in this river getting baptized, just like we baptize here. And as Jesus is baptized, as he gets dunked into the water and be brought up, we're told that the heavens part and the dove, which is the Holy Spirit, comes descending upon him and this thunderous voice out of the heaven cries out, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. From that moment, we see that Jesus goes from his baptism into the wilderness to be tempted. For 40 days and 40 nights, he wanders around fasting without food, without water, to be tempted. See, sometimes we get a little bit confused in the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, and we say that he's 100% God and 100% man, and what we mean when we say that he's 100% man is that he experiences this life just as we experience life. That he experienced joy just like we experienced joy. He experienced pain just like we experienced pain. He experienced suffering just like we experienced suffering. That he was tempted in the very ways that we were tempted. But here's the deal. That when Jesus was tempted, he did not use his divinity. He did not use his godness to cheat. He allowed himself to be tempted the way that we are tempted so that he could identify with us. He was not immune. He was involved. He experienced in it. And so we have this scene where Jesus is leaving his baptism, going into the wilderness to be tempted, and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights, just like the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. And the great tempter comes to him, and in Luke chapter 4, verse 3, here's what we're told, that the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you are the son of God, Jesus, if, if you are who God says you are, 
the Son, the Savior, the Messiah, the King. I mean, you can just hear the echoes of Saul's temptation in the life of Jesus. If you really are the anointed one, the way that God has said you are the anointed one, then just turn these stones into bread. You can do it. You can take this into your own hands. You can go outside the boundaries of of what God's created. If you truly are who God says you are, just do this. And Jesus replies to him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now the context of Jesus' answer comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. That as Israel wandered around the desert for 40 years, every day God would drop this thing called manna from the heavens onto them. And here's what we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. This is what Moses writes. He said, and he humbled you, that is God humbled you, and let your hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That as Israel wandered around the desert, God gave them manna, literally food, that fell from heaven. And the reason, Moses says, that this food fell from heaven is so that the Israelites, the Hebrew people, would learn that everything comes from the mouth of God. See, manna was one of the ways that God demonstrated that he could, with a word, meet your needs. That when fear was overwhelming, when everything looked hopeless, with a word, God could provide. But look what Satan does with that. Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you, if you really are the son of God, if you really are the anointed one, the savior, the Messiah, the king, then just turn this stone to bread. In other words, do the manna thing. You did it for the Israelites for 40 years. Just do it today. Do it for yourself. If the point of manna in the desert was to teach the people to expect miracles in distress. Jesus, you're in distress. If you are really the son of God, he doesn't want you distressed. God doesn't want you starving. He's not going to let the anointed one starve. Just treat yourself. Just treat yourself, Jesus. And Jesus responds to Satan, you are so close and yet you are so far. The point is not that God will provide a miracle in distress. Satan, the point was don't trust in bread, not even in miracle bread, but trust in God. See, we don't get our deepest satisfactions in life from the things of this world, but from God. That every word that comes out of the mouth of God is to reveal God, and through that, we find our satisfaction. Through that, we find our fulfillment. Through that is what we feed on. That will last forever. That's eternal life, Satan. God is my portion. You get out of here. See, at this moment, when Jesus is tempted not to believe that he is who God says he is, That at this moment when Jesus is is tempted to take control of the situation in his own hands, when Jesus is tempted to be driven by fear, just like Saul was, he pauses. Jesus pauses and he remembers that my heavenly father is with me. That God is a personal God that our God knows our name, that he knows what's going on, he knows the circumstances of our lives, that he cares for us. And for many of us, as we walk through the darkest moments of our lives, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as we navigate the wilderness, when we face fears in our lives that absolutely overwhelm us to know with confidence that God 
is right there with us, that God knows what you're going through, that God knows you, that he knows your name, that he cares for you, that many times that's all that we need. And Jesus in the wilderness demonstrates with his life that you can trust in the grace of God, that he knows you, that he cares for you, that he knows what you're walking through. Even when times are tough, even when the world is dark, even when it seems like he's not answering your prayers, even when the fears begin to overwhelm you and you're tempted to take control of the world in your own hands, in those moments, God knows your name. He sees what you're going through and he cares for you. It's what makes the resurrection so powerful. Remember right before the cross, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's there and he's praying and he's praying and he's praying and he's praying and he's crying and he's so intense that he's sweating everywhere and he's praying, God, if there's any other way, if there's any other way for me to become king and savior and Messiah, if there's any other way that doesn't include death, like make that way known to me. Don't let me die. I don't want to die. Like in this moment, if, if there's any other way, God, make it so. And he prays that prayer till he gets to the point where he stands up and goes, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, I'm not gonna be a slave to fear in this, but I'm gonna follow your will even to the point of death. I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna trust in your grace. So fast forward three days when the disciples peer into the empty tomb. It punctuated every single thing that Jesus ever taught and said about himself. That when Jesus rose from the dead, suddenly for the first time, it all made sense, especially what Jesus said about fear. See, for the resurrection, when it comes to the resurrection, the resurrection for us is Easter Sunday. But for them, it was everything. The resurrection for us is, is about Easter. For them, it was every single day of their life. It was the source of their confidence. It was the source of their boldness. It was the source of their strength. That the resurrection of Jesus validated everything he had taught. And because of it, the early Christians realized that they no longer had to be slaves to fear to the point where years later, Claudius Galatius, a Roman doctor, who would go into the gladiator arenas where the Christians were thrown in, that right before the Christians breathed their last breath and died, he would go and he would examine them. And he wrote this about the early Christians in their journal, for fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. See, for the early Christians, they were not slaves of fear like Saul. Because when you worship a risen Lord who has conquered death and looks at you and says, fear not, you realize that you can live without fear, not because this world isn't a scary place. It is. But because I have fastened my attention to the one who is deserving of all of my trust, the one who looks upon me and says, you are my sons and daughters in whom I am well pleased, who has extended his grace upon us, who knows our name, and cares for us. It was what drove the early church, where we see them move in such boldness and courage that ultimately they changed the worlds. To the point where they even took on the captives and the killers of their savior. And said, so there's nothing in this world that you can do to me. You can throw me in the arenas, you can hang me upside down on crosses, you can burn me alive, you can throw me on an island to die by myself, but I will continue to proclaim the God who knows my name, 
who walks with me in every circumstance, who cares for me. And because of that kind of trust in the grace of God, they lived lives that were wholly different from the one that we see in King Saul. And so today, if you want to know that kind of life, what it looks like to walk outside of being a slave to fear, the first step is to to submit your life to King Jesus, to realize that you're a sinner in need of grace, that you're a sinner in need of a savior. And so if God's whispering to you in that way today, I'm gonna invite you to text the name of Jesus to the text number 720-513-1933 and we'll meet you there. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we come to you and... uh, Lord, we look at your life and um, can't help but be moved. Lord, to see all of the teachings and the way that you demonstrated in your life, trust in the Heavenly Father. Lord, may we be the kind of people that demonstrate that. Lord, would you help us not be a people who are driven by fear, but for us to realize that we have a risen Savior, and when we have a Savior who has conquered sin and death, that there is nothing in this world that should bring us fear. God, I pray that you would move in that way today. Lord, all of us at some point or another are driven to the point of Saul tempted to take matters into our own hands, to color outside the bounds of which you've given. And Father, I pray in those moments that we would be just like Jesus, where we would pause and that we would remember that you are a God who cares for us, who loves us, who knows our name. Lord, I pray that we would be a people of boldness and courage that we would demonstrate that like you did, that we would demonstrate that like the early Christians did. And Lord, that our lives would be changed because of it. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. We come together on this first Sunday of the new year, remembering, celebrating, what happened at the cross where our King Jesus laid down his life, where his body was broken so that our sins and our iniquities, our trespasses, our mistakes would be forgiven. And so today we eat knowing the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus. And we remember the blood that was spilled that day a blood that frees us from being driven as slaves of fear and instead given confidence of knowing that our God is always with us. He cares for us to the point of death so that we can experience the abundant life in him. So today we drink and we remember. We're gonna continue in our worship and singing and in prayer. If you're here today and you would like prayer or maybe even a blessing in your life, we would love to come alongside you in that. You can make your way in-house to the banner online. You can click the button. If you are in-house, I'm gonna ask you to go ahead and stand. 
as we sing songs to our Lord, our Savior, our King Jesus today.